First Corinthians 15. As we continue through this great book, we are going to be dealing primarily with the resurrection, which we started uh, last week, seeing how the resurrection is an integral part of the gospel. And uh, so, by way of review, we uh, Paul has, uh, was teaching us that why we know the resurrection happened. One that didn't really deal with, but we did mention, was that Jesus himself said he would be res- resurrected. So, uh, if Jesus got it wrong, then we've got a lot more worse problems than just the resurrection, right? Uh, but one of the things Paul starts off with is the fact that they were converted. Jesus is converting sinners. So that uh, is certainly an evidence that he is alive. Uh, he was seen, of course, this was the main one he dealt with. He was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses, including all the apostles. And then also the Old Testament many times foretells of this event, which is something that we would expect to happen. But if the Old Testament is the word of God, then, of course, it must have come true. In passing, though, Paul makes a couple of interesting observations. First of all, he states that salvation is a process that results in perseverance. We should not presume we are saved unless we see evidence of that. Uh, and Paul saw, saw fit to bring that out in a summary of the gospel. It, it, salvation is a process. It is not a one-time act. It is a change. We done a little bit with that in Sunday school, right? And then he says that we identify ourselves by our relationship to Christ. You stand in the gospel. The gospel is that rock upon which you now build your life. It's who you are. It's your blessed hope. If we don't have that, what do we have? And that's kind of the way he will uh, continue on here. So last week we dealt with the evidences of the resurrection and its importance as a fundamental doctrine of the gospel. This week, as we just look at really four verses, we want to look at the implications that arise beyond even the gospel if there is no resurrection. That that, that uh, You can't just dismiss that as unimportant for a number of reasons. So as we come to verse 13, it is clear in Paul's mind, not only does a resurrection hinge on whether Christ is alive or not, whether he was resurrected, but an argument can be made that if there is no general resurrection of saints, then we can only conclude that Jesus is still in the grave. In other words, Paul argues both ways. One proves the other. If Christ if, uh, Christ is not raised, then there's no reason to assume that we will be raised. Uh, but if Christ, uh, if we are not going to be raised, and that was the Corinthians' specific problem, they didn't think that we were going to be resurrected in glorified bodies, and Paul says, if that's true, you're casting doubt upon the resurrection of Christ, because that's why Christ died, was buried, and rose again for our resurrection. He is, we'll see here, I think next week, he's the first fruits of many. And so if he's not raised, if we're not going to be raised, and he wasn't raised, it all, it, it both uh, are true. You can't have one without the other. So he states this, States it this way because there are those who are and still are those who teach that the, uh, there is no bodily resurrection that we as we will not. I guess there, uh, first there are I guess some who call themselves Christians who maybe believe we're just going to die like dogs, but primarily the idea is uh, 
by the, the Christian cults or whatever, that well, we're going to be raised, but it's, it's a spiritual resurrection. We're going to be raised and be spirit people, in a sense. And Paul says, no, not even that is correct. We will discuss why uh, why they would believe that in a moment, but Paul is telling them that if what they believe is true, then really the whole thing collapses, Christianity collapses. And so it would behoove us to be very careful in this matter. These are not unimportant doctrines, unimportant subjects. They are fundamental to who we are, fundamental to who we will be, fundamental to eternity. Uh, they are not just something that Christians can agree on. You're, you, uh, you, it, it's a uh, statement of the gospel. <clears throat> now let's remind ourselves from the outset that the Bible has clearly taught the resurrection of all men, either to damnation or salvation. We dealt a little bit with this last week, but we just want to make sure that we understand that even in the Old Testament, the fact that all will be raised, and again, so it's, it's more than just being raised spiritually. Remember, the lost will be raised to be given bodies that will suffer. So that there's a need, in a sense, for the for the lost to be raised, but for very different reasons, right? And we find this over, for instance, in Daniel chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will be awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so a lot of things going on there, but very clearly he's talking about a general resurrection. So much like with the practice of tongues uh, and the general way that the Corinthians had been conducting their services, we saw there that paganism was behind, I think, the way they use tongues, to use it like the pagans did, in a very emotional, ecstatic way. So, paganism had influenced them in this idea of the resurrection. Uh, Of course, we know that the the biggest uh, doctrinal issue, error, uh, that the early church faced for really the first two or three hundred years was Gnosticism. Uh, another way of saying it is dualism, and there's a, it's a very complicated uh, uh, religion, but what it did basically was say that matter is evil, and uh, so that which is physical is evil, and only spirit is good. The spirit is pure. God is pure. Jesus, since he was uh, had a body, he was uh, several steps down from that. Uh, but only God is pure, and so when and eventually we're all going to end up as pure spirit because anything material was considered evil. And so this, as we'll see in a moment, affected the way some early Christians, or at least Christianized people, read the Word of God. And so uh, when it comes to the eternal state, or even if there is life after death, 
uh, what is it going to look like? And every religion kind of has its own take about how we'll end up. Of course, you got the naturalists who say we're going to just die like a dog, that there is no spiritual world. But it's just ingrained in man. You see this, I think, in just the, net, the way we are, the, the world's religion, that, 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 that remaining effect of, of creation, that there is a spiritual world. There is a God. There are things uh, that we can't see. And so every religion has its own take about how we're all going to end up. But unfortunately, all but Christianity can only speculate because we base what we believe upon the word of God. And that's what we use uh, as our source. We're not speculating. We're not just hoping that it might be like that. Uh, we go by the, what the word tells us. <clears throat> um, some teach soul sleep. Of various forms, Jehovah's Witness are well known for that, and I don't know exactly where some of this stuff came from. It's never been accepted as, as uh, orthodox throughout uh, the church age, but uh, perhaps because Paul a couple of times refers to um, those who are Christians who have already died as being asleep. Uh, some people take that literally, uh, but that it would be a very uh, simplistic way of understanding what he's saying there. Of course, sleep means it's a temporary situation, right? You, if someone's asleep, we know that they're going to eventually wake up. So when Paul says that Christians who are dead are now asleep, he means that they are waiting for something else, right? Uh, we know that, that their souls are in heaven. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, the souls in Revelation 6 are asking, how long, O Lord, until you come and you judge and you... you uh, Spring retribution upon those who uh, killed us, right? So we, when we die, our bodies sleep in the grave. They're, the body is asleep. The body is waiting for the resurrection. And when Paul uses that term, it's talking about the bodies in the grave are asleep, in, in a sense, because there's something coming. And so there are those who say that you just, um, when you die, you just, uh, you're, you're unconscious until the next moment. You uh, are uh, you have your resurrected body, but of course, you think about Moses and Elijah. It's a, it's a transformation or the uh, transfiguration. Uh, they hadn't been asleep; they were there. They were present. They were uh, thinking, seeing, interacting with the Lord. And so, we'll go any further than that. That's again, only there are some who get caught up in all that, but that's never been really uh, questioned by the church at large. Some believe that we'll be annihilated. Of course, they uh, would really be hard-pressed to call them Christian, to think that we're just going to die like dogs, and that's it. Some teach that death ends uh, everything, but um, others believe that in reincarnation, that we're going to come back, our souls are going to come back and be given other, either human bodies or plant bodies or animal bodies. And so there's not a whole lot to look forward to. In reincarnation. Now they say, of course, it, it's a system of works. If you do really good, you'll come back as a better person, or if you don't do good, you might come back as a slug, whatever. But it just shows the confusion of what the Bible actually teaches, and what it, confusion about what it is to be created in the image of God. We're not created, if we're created to God's image, we're not just uh, going to be uh, eventually come back as an animal. This is the whole point. Others believe more Eastern 
cultish uh, ideas, Eastern influences, that we're all just going to be absorbed back into the uh, cosmos, the eternal oneness. And one of the things all these have in common is that there's really no hope of anything better than we have now. None of it. And I suppose that's why none of those groups really have scenes, songs, and hymns, and, and celebration like that. There, there's just not a whole lot to sing about, if that's the best we can do. I was reading about one philosopher who said, very sadly, <clears throat> would it really matter if I were lost in a drop of water in the ocean? If, if I were but a lost drop of water in the ocean? If I could be one shining particle in some glorious wave that broke in utter splendor and perfect beauty on the shore of eternal of the eternal sea, is it, is it such a bad thing for to be one little speck in the eternal sea? Well, that that assumes a lot. That it, you know, who made this eternal sea? Who made this eternal oneness? What's the point of it? Just to shine forth for who? So it assumes a lot. But it doesn't really give us much hope. It, it, it doesn't give it's a bleak, it gives us meaning, but it's a bleak meaning. You're just going to be absorbed back into to the eternal oneness. Well, what, what does that mean? What, what good is that? It doesn't matter. Because the Bible clearly says that it's not going to turn out that way, that each soul created the image of God, if God saves you, will spend eternity if you want to be in the eternal oneness, in the eternal heavenly choir praising the Lord, but we know it's much more than that as well. Humanity is not just a small part of a whole indistinguishable creation from which it came from. We were created with a certain purpose, to have a certain relationship and duty to our creator. We were created to be the pinnacle of creation, to be above creation. Uh, Adam was to use creation for himself as he served the Lord. So we're not part of everything. We're distinct from everything. <clears throat> and of course there are many who hate that. There are many out there today, and it's, it's a problem, who believe that humans are the problem. And if humans weren't around, uh, nature would be better off. Well, I'm sorry, nature was created for, it was made for humans. No, it's completely got it backwards. But when you when you don't have the light, you say foolish things because you don't know any better. And so the heart of what's ripped, uh, ripped, uh, tripping up these Corinthians is a form of dualism or Gnosticism. The idea that sees everything spiritual as good and everything material as evil is something we want to get rid of. And so when people were saying that we're, there's not going to be a bodily resurrection, it wasn't that they had come up with that in Scripture so much as it didn't, in their way of understanding, there couldn't be. That would be a regression backward. And, of course, the Greeks had been teaching something similar for generations. <clears throat> it's clearly of satanic origin, and they're confusing uh, man with the concepts of Spiritual and material. It's to cause it to misinterpret the Bible. Sin is not in the flesh. Now we have flesh that God gave good and necessary appetites and desires. And, th- and those are not sinful 
It's our mind. Sin is in our fallen nature that wants to use the flesh for that which is wrong. And, and one of the and, and, and we can see where Gnosticism influenced some of the early church, and of course it continues on, in, in monasticism and asceticism, is the idea that, well, sin is in the material, so if I can somehow get rid of this or beat my body or say no to my body, I will overcome my sin. Or if I go and join a, a monastery and get away from the world, I'll become more holy. Well, the problem is sin is in your heart. Wherever you go, you take sin with you. So it's not your body's fault. It's not material's fault. It's your mind. It's your soul that is fallen. Now you can understand if you read Romans 8 here in verse 5, how you could misinterpret this if your mindset was matter, evil, spirit, good. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And they take that to mean that God, he's speaking of the fleshly body. And of course, but we, reading this and, and having the rest of the Bible, understand, no, Paul's not saying that the body is bad, but he, but he says that, that this world, the, the, the world around us, what we can see and taste and and, and interact with and sense, that's the flesh, includes our bodies. And if we just live to please the body, uh, we're, we're uh, not setting our minds on that which is good. The spirit uh, are the, the things of God. That, that's the, the point there. And you, it's, you can see how someone who is a narcissist could completely miss the point. Flesh here is the remaining sin that dwells in our flesh, not not the material itself. So the the body is not inherently sinful. The body is affected by sin, but it can only do what your sinful mind tells it to do. Remember, God made our bodies and called it good. Our bodies are fallen, but it is our hearts that give us the reason that is the reason that we sin. Not because matter is inherently evil. That's in our, that's inside. And so it also confuses the concept of sin because so many assume that if they could just escape their bodies, they'd be sinless or they'd be better and they don't have any understanding of what sin is and that it's in our, in our very essence. That's why, uh, some steered in Acts 17 at Mars Hill when Paul spoke of the resurrection. Well, they said now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it was that point. They were listening to Paul talk about God and, 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 and there's a God who ruled everything that we had to answer to. But then when they said that he was raised again in the body and that we shall be raised in a body, that's the thing that they said, wait just a minute. Some mocked. But others said we would hear about this later on. So, um, so you see, that, that was the tripping point, is this very reason. They couldn't conceive of living in material bodies because they assumed that was the cause of evil. Uh, so even some Jews didn't believe in the resurrection like the Sadducees, but most understood that there was a resurrection, even though they had not a whole lot of life in the Old Testament. But remember, we saw, because they had Daniel 12 that we just read about, Remember uh, last week we looked at John 11 where Mary and Martha 
obviously understood that. Jesus uh, talks about your brother will rise again. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection last day. She, she's probably referring to Daniel 7 or 12. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so we see there that they understood that there was going to be a resurrection, but some Christians later on began to uh, get get confused in all these things. <clears throat> Paul states in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise First, again, you, you read that and, and you can maybe, uh, it doesn't specifically say body, but uh, what's in the grave? Our souls are in the grave. Our souls with Christ. So when he says they, that, that which is in the grave will hear and, and will be raised first, he has to be referring to the body. And there he makes it very clear. Um, and so in verse 12, of our text, the first point he makes is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead in a body that could be seen and felt. Why would someone assume that all of us won't be raised with the same type of body? Uh, that statement in verse 12 is an indicative form, which means it's stated as a fact. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, in other words, the Bible, Paul says, proclaims as a statement of fact, Christ is raised from the dead, we might paraphrase bodily. Um, raised from the dead is also in the perfect tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. It's, it's, it's not saying that Christ was raised from the dead, but that Christ is raised. It, it is, it's the present state. And so what Paul is going to go on to show is that not only is our resurrection possible and guaranteed because of Christ's own resurrection, but if it isn't true, there are other very dire consequences. That's kind of where he's going now. So in verse 13, he, he kind of makes this statement that each proved the other. The Bible teaches that we will be raised, which means Christ had to be raised because he conquered sin and death. And if we will never be raised, then what exactly did he purchase? What was the point of his death and resurrection if we aren't going to be raised? What was he buying? What was he purchasing? For us. What was it? He's securing for us. And if he can't raise himself, how do we know he could raise us? In fact, we would have to assume he couldn't raise us. If he can't raise himself, no way can we be raised. And so one, to question one calls it to question the other. In verse 13, he states that I think pretty obviously. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. They say, how could those who describe themselves as believers get around the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Well, again, it's because they would assume Gnosticism, the understanding that Christ only appeared to have a physical body. In other words, Gnosticism says all evil, all matter is evil. So, when they read the New Testament, what do they do? Well, yeah, Christ came down, but he didn't really have a real body. He appeared to have a, a real body. But it wasn't real. It was God in a man suit, as it were. Or, you know, it, 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 and 
and not even that necessarily. It was just it was God uh, just having the form of a body. But there's no way he can have a physical body because that's the whole problem with Gnosticism. But of course that means he wasn't really human. Because remember, he came to die, and if you don't have a body, if you're not, if you're not a human, how are you going to die? But he came to give us to, to uh, be a sacrifice for sin. So if, 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 if this is the case, he's not really man, and if God, if Jesus wasn't really a man, but just God in, a, in a, the appearance of a man, then, he, then he's not a, he can't be a substitute for man. His death would have no value. So it just starts to snowball. And so, uh, if this, it, it might sound a little simplistic to say all that, but that's kind of the point. It, it's, a, it's an obvious scriptural teaching that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We'll see a, a, another verse that we haven't looked at yet here in a moment. Christ came in the flesh to save those who are in the flesh, who are flesh. That's kind of the whole point. <clears throat> and of course, the Gospels go out of their way, if you think about it, to show that Christ was human, he had physical weakness, he was tired, he wept, he had emotions, he suffered physically, such that is common to all of us. He ate, he slept, he, t- he told the disciples to touch the wounds after his resurrection. So you see how the narrative goes out of its way to explain to us that he had a real physical body and that he had one after he rose from the dead. Because it's extremely important when it comes to us. <clears throat> the alternative is that all things Jesus was doing, he was just acting out a massive ruse. He really wasn't doing it. He, he never was tired. He never was hungry. He just pretended. And so, again, you, you've got all sorts of problems. So that's the case. No, the, the Bible makes it very clear he is a living human being. Not just God in a man suit. He had two natures. He had divine nature. He had human nature who were joined in one person. And again, sometimes you got errors where Jesus is two persons in one body. No, that's an error. He's not, he's not schizophrenic. He's one person, but he has both nat- the full nature of man and the nat- full nature of God. It's very important that you understand that. So we take the gospel record seriously. The gospel is not just Jesus telling us to do good, to behave. That's certainly part of it all. But there's much more than that. And of course the apostles state very clearly that he was human. I want you to notice here in Romans 1. One of these days we're going to go through Romans. But an extremely interesting important verse here in verse 3. Where Paul says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So Jesus, Paul says Jesus was not God in a man's suit. Jesus, uh, was of the line of David and was born, uh, as a man from David. Extremely telling phrase. And was declared to be the son of God in power. Uh, of course, as he was born, and he looked like any old baby that was born back then, but as he started his ministry, through his power and his words and through the testimony of the Father and the Holy Spirit, he was declared to be much more than a man, to be the second person of the Trinity. 
So declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, also, of course, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So all those things work together to help us understand who uh, Jesus was. In Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And this, these are, this is words that Yahweh spoke in the Old Testament. I am the first and the last, the living one. I die, and I behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hate. I died so that you won't die. That's the whole purpose. But I had to die for that to take place. Um, so just, again, very interesting but very telling uh, statements to let us know what's going on. The deception is what John spoke of, the deception of who Christ was in Second uh, John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They didn't deny that Jesus came. He was born or came into the world. But they, they deny that he came in the flesh, that he had a, an actual body, that he was human. It was, that's that Gnosticism. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so it's not a subject that Christians can debate. You're either a Christian and you believe that, or if you don't believe it, you're a deceiver and you're lost in your sin. So if anything is sure, scripturally, uh, in scriptural teaching, it is that Jesus died physically, and he, he didn't seem to die, but he had an actual body that came out of the grave that could touch, that could eat, because he, as we'll see next week, was the firstborn of many brethren. His body went into the grave and came out in a glorified state, but still a physical body. So we will too. It's teaching what's going to happen to us. And all confessions from the most ancient until now confirm the second person of the Godhead became man while retaining full Godhood. That's always been the case of any uh, orthodox confession. And as I said, that was the biggest error that plagued the early church. And that's why the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 took place to confirm the nature of Christ as fully man and fully God. That's what it was all about. And so in verse 14, we read, And if Christ be not raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So you can't be a Christian. There is no Christianity apart from the resurrection. So he states that if this isn't the case, our faith is really just a cruel, useless joke that doesn't accomplish anything because it's to save you from your sins. And if it didn't take place, you're still in your sins, he's going to say. The whole point of the gospel is to deliver us from sin and death. And if Christ can't conquer sin and death and make it into it, then, then we're still in our sins and we're still going to die and die forever. Which he, he'll say, if you go down to read verse 17, he'll make that very plain. So, that means either we die like a dog, and life has no meaning, or we go to hell. In other words, those are only two options. If Christ is still in the grave, then none of it's true, we're going to die like a dog. Or, 
we're going to end up like Christ too, because Christ was the first fruits. He, he's the forerunner of this thing. And neither one are good options. That's what Paul is saying here. Um, as we've said many times, this means that the meaning of his death can't be reduced to a mere example for us to follow, because then his resurrection really wouldn't matter. What's the point of being good if Paul's going to get to that point? If we're not going to be raised, if we have no future, why behave ourselves? Because we've got no one to answer to. As long as you can not answer for it in this life, you're good. That's why liberals can deny the resurrection, because sin isn't our problem anyway. To the liberal, it's your physical being poor or being sick. Or those are your problems. Because that's all there is. So those that uh, believe Jesus was just a man, believe him to still, still be dead, because they don't believe that uh, we're going to answer to God to begin with. But not only is preaching the good news that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins, um, it's, it's useless to believe that message if for salvation if, if Christ is not raised. It would not make any sense. Anyone who says keep your religion to yourself obviously doesn't believe they're sinners, right? Because if you believe you're a sinner, you want to know how to get rid of that sin, how to get rid of the guilt. And if you don't tell people how, they're lost, right? So as soon as someone says religion should be a personal thing, you shouldn't tell anybody, what they're saying is I don't believe anything the Bible says. I don't believe that I'm a sinner. I don't believe that I'm going to be that God would judge me and send me to hell. Because if you believe the bridge is out, you warn people to stop before you uh, run off the cliff, right? And so the Bible teaches that saving faith is to trust Christ's work as sufficient to save you from your sins because he is our substitute and he bore in his body on the tree what we could not. If he's still in the grave, then what are we trusting in? And so this is why we can't reduce faith to believing facts or just wishful thinking, as some do. We call it easy beliefism. That Christianity is just me believing that Jesus died for me. No, the Bible never brings it across like that. It isn't that God is saying, I'm going to make a statement, I'm going to do something, and I want you to take my word for it. Just take my word for it in the Bible that Christ died for you. And if you'll just take my word for it, then uh, that's all you need. I'll forgive your sins. Say, well, well, doesn't the Bible say that salvation comes through faith? Yes, it comes through faith, but repentance in faith. Yes, we have to trust in the Lord. We have to renounce ourselves. Our works are just going to send us to hell. Only Christ's work is what, that's what I need on my account. And so I believe, I, I receive Christ for my salvation. But that comes, of course, we have to be regenerated. And give it a new nature for us to do that. So it's, it's not just about believing a fact. Do you believe this to be true? And if you do, you're good. You go do whatever you want to do. You have to use Christ. You don't just believe Christ. It's like that chair. If I believe that chair can hold me up, but I refuse to sit in it, what does that say about my faith? So I, I, I trust that chair by sitting in it, not by saying I trust it. See? And a lot of people say, I trust in Jesus Christ, but they're not trusting in him because they're not resting in him. 
And so lastly, in verse 15, there are further ramifications if Christ is not raised, which is that we can't really believe anything the Bible says. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead be not raised. So, you call into question the whole, not only the apostles' witness, but since they wrote the Bible, you're, you're saying basically the Bible is not true. The apostles' main duty was to testify of the resurrected Christ and why he came to earth, what the meaning of all that was. If they're lying, or if they're confused about what Christ did, then you really can't trust what they say. Especially since the resurrection was kind of the foundational doctrine that they taught, that they were to be witness to the resurrection. And so if, the, if their main witness is in, not credible, then what in the world could you believe about the Bible that they wrote? For those who say that they were confused, that the apostles were confused or mistaken, of course, calls into question everything else that they say, because they got the main thing they were to get right wrong, right? So why would I commit my soul to someone who could make such a fundamental mistake in their understanding? The main thing Christ wanted them to, them to testify about, they got wrong. So we'll stop here today, but let's not fail to point out that if Christ is still in the grave, and he clearly said, as we saw last week, saw this one too, that he said he was going to die and be raised the third day, if Christ got it wrong and it really didn't happen, then the Savior, is he a Savior? If he got that wrong, what else did he get wrong? How can you rely... Give yourself, your uh, your soul, to someone that you can't rely upon. Why are we listening to anything he said if he was that mistaken about his death and resurrection or if he didn't have the power to make it come true? Why would we listen to anything else he had to say? Now, liberals and Muslims, for instance, would answer that he did he got. There's a lot of things we read about in the Bible that he never really said. The apostles got it wrong. They didn't actually uh, get it right when they related it to us. But, of course, all that's doing is saying that we don't know. We have no reliable witness at all. Never mind the fact that we have manuscripts from the very first century, or at least pieces, and, uh, and later, that coincide exactly with what we have in our Bibles. Even uh, We have even... Manuscripts written before Christ that lets us know that what we have is very accurate. So historically, it's laughable to say that the apostles got it wrong, that we don't really know what Jesus said. But the problem is, is that if it's true, then we don't really know what the truth is. But if there is a God, and if there is a law, if he has a will, and if there is sin, and if there is salvation, and there is a heaven and a hell, there is eternal life and eternal misery, then I have to believe that God, who is wise enough to create everything, is also wise enough to be able to give us a clear statement about how to be saved from our sin. In other words, think about what's being said when, when we say that, that uh, the, the Bible is confusing. 
it doesn't really say what it says, doesn't mean what it says, we're saying that God is unable to, to communicate with his creatures. He's not very wise, not very powerful, not very articulate. But that's what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, if you've ever heard that term. Perspicuity means the clearness of Scripture. The Bible is written in a way that is able to be understood for salvation. It doesn't mean that everything's as easy as the other thing. But it's clear enough to understand what needs to be understood. God has the ability to communicate to his creatures, and he has done so, and the Bible is evidence of that. Now, liberals hate this. And they try to say the Bible is open to everyone's interpretation, that we can't be dogmatic about anything. But of course, all that is an attack upon the goodness uh, and wisdom of God, if that's the case. And they really have formed, they have made God into a well-wisher who loves us all equally, that it doesn't have wrath, he wants everyone to go to heaven. Well, well what you've done, though, is eradicated most really eviscerated most of the Bible and only picked those ones that make you feel good about yourself and your situation. But you're think about what you're doing. You're you're saying a lot of what the Bible says I choose not to believe. But then why believe any of it? Right. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at. But we'll stop there today. Any questions? Thank you, you're dismissed.